My name is Jeremy. I'm part of the pastoral staff here at Redemption Gilbert. It's Palm Sunday. Happy Palm Sunday. Uh, Yeah. You guys are excited. I like that. Uh, Really, that means next week is Good Friday and Easter. This is the week before Holy Week, the kickoff of Holy Week. And so just want to remind you, we have Good Friday services at 6.30 and 8 out on the lawn. Sunday morning, we'll be back in here at 8, 9.30 and 11. This is an amazing opportunity for you to invite people who maybe haven't been around church or haven't been around church for a while to experience what the community of Jesus followers look like as we celebrate the highlight of our year Easter. Uh, We still need a few more people to help us serve as we host people coming to church. So if you can help with guest services or kids ministry, that'd be amazing. You can sign up online at the info desk or at the uh, lobby across the way. There'll be somebody there who can help you. I'm really excited to be here this morning with you. I have the opportunity to be able to lead us through a conversation uh, through the whole chapter uh, 9 in the Gospel of John. It's in chapter 9 that we encounter one of the most well-known miracles that Jesus uh, performs, as well as one of the most widely quoted lines to ever come out of the Gospels. I want to remind you that uh, John is recording this gospel with a very specific structure that undergirds the entire thing. His selection of stories and the structure of delivering these stories all serve to reinforce the central theme that the gospel is trying to impress upon us. The stunning claim that Jesus is God. He does this by recording verbal statements that Jesus makes. It's where uh, Jesus really centers his focus when he talks about what Jesus is teaching. We see one of those last week as we closed up chapter 8, where Jesus refers to himself using the phrase, I am. Uh, This gospel is littered with these kind of direct and confrontational, powerful statements about Jesus' divinity and his claim to be not just the promised Messiah of Israel, but God himself, Yahweh. It's an absolutely overwhelming claim that he makes. Another thing that John does for us is he records uh, miracles that Jesus uh, performs during his ministry, signs and wonders. We've heard of a few of them already. We're going to see another one this morning. Uh, And I think that we can think about these miracles in a few different ways. I think it's important that we don't minimize what these miracles are providing us as readers of this gospel. The first way we can kind of look at them is probably the most obvious one. It might be the way you've thought about these miracles in the past, that the the purpose of these miracles was primarily a way for Jesus to prove he was who he said he was, right? He's writing big checks with his mouth. Don't worry, he's got the bank account to back it up. Boom, he walks on water. And that, that is true. But isn't that kind of the reality of life, right? If you keep talking about how great you are at basketball and how sweet your jumper was in high school and how you just were that one unfortunate knee injury away from that D1 scholarship, at some point, somebody's going to invite you to the basketball court to prove that you got it. No one's ever invited me to the basketball court, just so we know. I'm not really giving off that vibe. Uh, so is that all that Jesus' miracles were? I mean, just him putting his money where his mouth was. I I think it's important for us to grasp the significance of these signs and wonders that Jesus is trying to transmit to us over all these years because it's not just about validating who Jesus claims to be. Uh, It's not just validating his words. And believe me, that's significant. It's a big deal. But what's even more amazing about these miracles is not that he can perform magic tricks or that he can... uh, 
be verified to have some validated canonization level miracle, but it's the kinds of miracles that he's performing that are significant. These are not random feedings. These are not haphazard healings. He didn't just stumble his way through the countryside doing whatever fell into his lap. He doesn't heal the blind and raise the dead on a whim or because it's the most readily available miracle opportunity. He does these miracles and he chooses these moments, not just to prove he is God, but because these kinds of miracles are demonstrations of a world in which God walks. He doesn't just do things only God can do. He does the kinds of things God does. A great example of this, earlier in his ministry, John the Baptist, who is the major prophet who, who comes before Jesus and makes claims about who Jesus is, suddenly finds himself in jail. And he begins to wonder, maybe I made a mistake about this whole Jesus Messiah thing. I kind of expected this Messiah rollout to be a little flashier, a little bigger. Here I am in jail. Are, are we sure that you're the guy? John sends some of his disciples to go talk to Jesus and clarify we got this straight, everything's good. And Jesus at that moment refers back to a well-known piece of writing from the prophet Isaiah, something that was written 700 years before the moment that he utters the words. And what he quotes is a writing that is part of the vision that the Israelites carried forward about their expectation of what it would look like when God returned to set things right. Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 35. We have it recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 11. Here's what he says. The disciples show up. They ask Jesus, John's curious. Are you the guy? And Jesus says, you go back and report to John what you see and what you hear. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Over the centuries in Israel, the expectation of what the Messiah was going to bring became focused on temporal and concrete victory over enemies. They wanted a great king, a powerful army, extranational domination. The Messiah was going to finally allow Israel to dunk on them haters. Because <laughs> what had been part of their history all this time was this like revolving door of dominating nation states who had just came into their land and oppressed them over and over again. And they were ready for a Messiah that was going to put an end to the curse of their enemies. But what they had lost sight of is that the true enemy was one that was more insidious and more deeply ingrained into the reality of the world. Military might and global domination, cultural sway, being on the top of the pile, those are things that came and went. In fact, Israel in their history had experienced it. First, it was the Assyrians who got conquered by the Babylonians, who got conquered by the Persians, who got conquered by the Greeks, who got conquered by the Romans. And that trend just continues. Eventually, the, uh, England is a major empire. Now, the United States is on the top. It just goes on and on and on. This is a treadmill that does not stop. These are the th kinds of things that can be mustered by mighty and accomplished men. But what... Jesus is doing is not the kind of thing that can be done by men with resources and clever strategies. Because Jesus is doing the kind of things that God does, the kinds of things only God can do. Jesus is confronting the true enemy that undergirds the problems that plague us. He's, he's tackling things like sin and suffering and death itself. These are, these are the kind of things that no king or ruler would even proclaim that he could do because it's nonsense. 
but Jesus. He goes directly at the problem that undergirds all that is broken in the world. And we're going to see that fully on display this morning while we work through the story of a man who's born blind and Jesus' encounter with that man. Let's pray together that God would meet us here. God, we come before you this morning and we confess that it can be hard to see you at times because of circumstances, because of sin, because of distance. God, we don't always see you as clearly as we'd like to. We pray that this morning that wouldn't be true. God, I pray for myself that you'd give me clarity of words and thought, that the things I've prepared would be helpful for these people in this room who are hearing it and those people at home who are watching us online. God, we want to see Jesus. We want to know Jesus. We want to be transformed by Jesus. Meet us. Be faithful to us. Help us to see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to kick off chapter 9 here, but probably helpful to get a little short run-up because this kicks off right in the middle of some action. Uh, You remember the Gospel of John kicks off with a preamble in which John makes some amazing claims. He says that Jesus is the light of the world and that he is God that they have always known come in the flesh. And since that moment, uh, the text has primarily been recording the ministry life of Jesus as he kind of ebbs and flows from the countryside, mostly surrounding the Sea of Galilee, uh, where his base of operations is there in Capernaum. He's meeting with people, he's teaching, he's doing miracles, he's building a following. And then as festival seasons come around, he moves his way into Jerusalem for festivals. And in those places, he's having confrontations with the religious leaders that are trying to contend with his movement. And the book just continues to kind of ebb and flow between those two things, confronting the religious leaders back to the countryside to do miracles and teach and build a following and back into Jerusalem and back and forth. And where we find ourselves here at the beginning of chapter 9 is one of those confrontations when he's in Jerusalem in festival season. And he has a confrontation with the religious elite. Last week, we saw that big confrontation uh, when he tells the Pharisees. Now remember, the Pharisees are the religious authorities of the day. He confronts them and he says that they are the children of Satan. Pretty bold. And he follows up that body blow with a knockout punch in which he claims that he predates Abraham, their father, because he is God and they lose it. It tells us that they grab stones to throw rocks at him. And just so we know, it's not like when there's a stray dog in your neighborhood and you're going to scare it away. They want to kill him by pounding him with stones. And Jesus slips away into the crowd. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm just going to talk about me. If I just slipped away from a violent stoning, I'm probably going to lay low for a little bit. Just like, you know, cool out down the shades, watch a little Netflix, I don't know, six months, a year, I've already done it a year, what's another one? Let's just relax. Uh, Jesus, nope, he doesn't do that. He gives them just enough time to simmer out of their murderous rage, and boom, he's right back at them. And that's where we pick up chapter 9. Chapter 9 opens by telling us that Jesus and the disciples, after he slipped away in the crowd, are going along and they come upon a man born blind. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a nerd, and so if you're not a nerd, I apologize. If you are, time to get excited. There's going to be a map on here. Okay, I brought a map. 
Okay, this is a map of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. I understand there's a ton of stuff up here. You're not going to make a ton of sense of it. I want to draw your attention to the part that's outlined in the hash lines of red. That's the Temple Mount. Uh, and right in the middle, there's a section that says men's court. Most likely, this confrontation that Jesus would have had with the Pharisees is they're arguing about who they are. And he says, you know, you're Satan's kids and I'm God. Uh, that's going to happen in that area. And you may be wondering, that's a pretty small area. How in the world does Jesus slip away into the crowd in that moment? Well, you have to remember, this is during the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, this is one of the major pilgrimage festivals that was part of Jewish religious life. There would have been three times a year that you were expected as a good Jew to make a uh, pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. It would have been the Passover, Pentecost, and then this, the Feast of Tabernacles. That means there would have been hundreds of thousands of people descending on the city. And the temple would have been an absolute gong show. People everywhere. So the idea that Jesus could slip away into the crowd actually makes sense. And then it says that they go along their way and they come to a man who's been born blind. Now, the text does not tell us where he was, but I think we can make some good assumptions. Uh, the first one is because of this. He was blind. Therefore, he would have been considered unclean and not been permitted to enter the temple grounds, most likely. Now, I'm guessing if he's a man who was born blind and been able to survive in a very harsh social climate, uh, he would have also been pretty smart and figured out how to survive in this kind of environment. He would have placed himself on the temple steps, just on the southern part of the temple mount, outside of the gates, where thousands of people streamed by every single day. And he's doing some betting here. Number one, these are religious folks making a religious pilgrimage. They're probably going to be in a generous mood. They're going to buy a little bit of privilege with God. They're going to give me some money. We can make some guesses that he probably survives a large part of his year based on the money that he raises sitting along this path during one of these three festivals to be able to survive. Now, Jesus and the disciples approach the man, and the disciples see uh, an incredible opportunity to be um, insensitive, let's say, because they ask a question, a clinical question and answer about this poor man, and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Uh, this question might catch us as modern readers a little off guard. It's pretty cold. It's pretty judgmental. It feels very uh, by-the-numbers and yet, it really inhabits some of the common ideas of the day, very accepted ideas. Here's what they believed. Sin brought curses, and sinful people would be punished and earn what they receive. Therefore, if this man was born blind, he must have done something to deserve it. But the part that's a little confusing, the gray area in the calculus is it was before he was born, so we're not sure. Was it his parents who did this, or was it him sinning in the womb? that brought this about. Another part that adds to this interesting conversation is theories about how eyesight worked. These people did not live in the modern scientific era. We have a pretty good handle on how eyes work today. Less so then. In fact, the way that they viewed eyesight is that light inside of a person actually illuminated out like a flashlight to allow you to observe the world. And you go, that doesn't sound right. I'm gonna show you Jesus looked at it that way when he taught. This was the culture of the day. Luke chapter 11, here's what he says. Your eye is the lamp of your body. 
When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when they're unhealthy, your body is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. I want to I make sure that we understand the disciples are not just being jerks. Like, this is the way that they understood the world. And they were, I think, sincerely approaching their master who understood the way the world works at a deep level and asked, okay, who's responsible here? This is confusing. And Jesus gives his disciples a decisive answer. And he tells them that it's neither the man nor his parents that sinned. Now, we have to be careful. It's not that they've never sinned. Obviously, that's not true for either party in the question. Uh, we, we don't know much about them. We don't have much recorded. We're separated by a couple thousand years. But here's what we know. They're humans, therefore they have sinned. But Jesus is clear that it is not their sin that was the cause of their physical disability. And I, and I think it's important to note Jesus is saying this here because it really does confront something that we can tend to believe God, about God. And this is not something just tied to ancient people. This is something that's tied to modern ways of thinking about the way God deals with people and the world. And I hear it sometimes in the language of people in the church. It's confronting the idea of God being some sort of karma distribution system. That the idea that bad things happen because God has cursed you due to your or your parents' poor choices. And there are a few dangers that come along with looking at God in that way. The first one is it can make God transactional at best and vindictive and harsh at worst. When our struggles and our tragedies and our illnesses are defined through an incorrect lens, it makes God not a loving shepherd who cares for his sheep, but a harsh father who punishes his children to make their lives miserable. Let's be clear. Sin carries with it natural consequences. If you pursue rebellion and a lack of wisdom in your life, don't be shocked when it doesn't turn out well. Jesus is not saying there is no consequence for sin. He's saying that this is not attributed to God's karmic retribution. It does not reflect a situation in which God is distant from the heart of his children. And if we take that position, it does two things to us. Number one, it makes us dismissive and judgmental towards other, others. After all, they deserved it. And that becomes a very dangerous place for us when we start to look at the world and we say, why is this person suffering? Why is this person poor? Why is this person suffering injustice? Because they did something to deserve it. It was them, their parents, their community. Somebody's to blame for this. It puts us in a position of judgment. And on the opposite side, it puts us in an awkward position where we are unable to be grateful and robs us of a correct perspective of the gifts and blessings that we've been given. After all, if they deserved this, we earned this. And that is a dangerous place to be. And Jesus doesn't allow it. Jesus recasts this moment in this man's life, not as one of fate or punishment, not of one of shame or dismissiveness, but one of honor. And he parks his life and his experiences as, as one in which God will make himself known and seen. Jesus says, I am the light of the world and I am going to shine a light in this place to show you what is really going on. What God really values and how to really see this situation. And Jesus gets to work healing this man's eyesight. 
I want you to imagine, I've spent a couple weeks because I had a run-up to this to know I was teaching. I've spent a couple weeks in the text, and I like to really try to inhabit the story of what's happening. And I want you to join me a little bit on the journey, right? This man is sitting on a dusty corner with thousands of people streaming in and out, just hoping that people in their goodness will provide him some little bit of what he needs to survive. And it's in that crowd, huge crowd, in which Jesus approaches with his disciples, also probably a fairly large number. Most likely more than just his 12 disciples, there's probably a crowd of hangers-on that are following Jesus around. And we don't, have, uh, we don't know exactly how close they are to the man when they begin this conversation, but it's a little too cringy for me to think they're standing there close enough for him to hear them. So I imagine them at a distance while they ask the question, and then Jesus just pushes in. And he closes the gap. The text does not give us any recording of words exchanged between them as this moment happens, of direction that Jesus gives them. Here's what we get. Jesus dips down into the dirt and he grabs a handful of dust and he spits into it and he begins to work it into a clay and he spreads it on the man's eyes. This moment echoes the creation of humanity in the very beginning of Genesis in which God takes clay and makes man, and here God needs clay to recreate what has been broken. It is beautiful, and it's poetic. It's kind of gross. Anybody else feeling that? A little gross? Here's this poor guy sitting all by himself alongside of the road, just minding his business. Somebody comes along, picks up some dirt, spits in it, starts working it. I'm guessing he's hearing him. What's that guy doing? Next thing you know, wet, cold mud smearing on his eyes. It's it's a little weird. We got to be honest about that. And here's the thing. It's not that Jesus just chose to heal the man. That's that's significant, but it's not the thing that's going to lead to confrontation. What's confrontational about his choice to heal this man today is that he's doing it on what the text says is a Sabbath. Now, it's interesting, it doesn't say the Sabbath. It says a Sabbath. How does that work? Well, this is happening uh, on a Sabbath, and we need to be clear about the Sabbath. It's, this is not Earth Day. Wait, Earth Day, when was that? Three days ago. I missed it again for the everyth time in my life. Right? That's not the Sabbath in the Jewish life. You were very aware of when Sabbath days were. And the Feast of Tabernacles that's going on, this occurs every fall. It's a festival that Jesus has come to Jerusalem to celebrate, Uh, And uh, these last few chapters of the Gospel of John are all recording Jesus' interaction during this festival or right after it. This festival is a harvest festival. It's designed to celebrate the fall harvest and God's provision for his people for yet another year. It's the end of the growing season. And to do, for this celebration, on the very first day of the holiday and on the seventh day of the holiday, they would have bonus Sabbath days. And the bonus Sabbath day was to really reinforce this idea that God provides. It's not just our work that provides. So the first and the last day, we're going to guess he did this on the last day. Maximum effect. Let's go. There are work requirements that are forbidden on the Sabbath. And everyone is clear about what is required. And Jesus breaks the Sabbath explicitly in two ways. The first one is he heals on a Sabbath. That cannot happen unless it is emergency and you are trying to save someone's life. It'd be hard to argue that he's saving this guy's life in this moment. After all, he's been blind since birth. You could have done it yesterday or tomorrow. But here he goes. The second one is he's kneading 
on the Sabbath. It was against the law to need bread or to need clay to make bricks on the Sabbath. And Jesus, in his mud-spitting way, needs mud intentionally to provoke confrontation. And then he sends the man to the pool of Siloam. Let's pull the map up just for a second again so you can get a feel of where this is. So remember, if the man is standing on the temple steps just at the southern part of the mount, the Siloam pool is right here. It's all the way at the bottom corner of the city. And he sends the man down to this. And we're so far removed from this moment, it seems like an odd request. It's not like he said, hey, the water fountain is right here. Why don't you wash that gross stuff off your face? He sends him down to this pool. And, and it's easy to go, well, what's that about? Is he just testing to see if the guy's serious about wanting to be healed? Why is he having him do this? But I'm going to argue that this moment has a massive significance about what Jesus is doing and what John's trying to communicate to us through this text. It's really easy to miss if you're not familiar with the world and the cultural practices that dominated this part of the world. The temple or the feasts that were going on during this time every year, every day of the feast, they would send people from the temple down to the pool of Siloam to gather water. And they would carry it up to the temple and there would be a ceremony pouring that water over the altar in the temple every day of the festival. Why would they do this? They did this because it was another reference to the prophet Isaiah. This time in chapter 12, here's a short bit of it. He says, surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day, you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Are you seeing a little connection in the language that Jesus is using here? And the fact that he's sending them to this pool? This pool was a symbol, a hopeful picture of a moment to come. The day of the Lord is how they would have referred to it. The day when God would return and rescue his people. And the pool of Siloam during this festival was known as the well of salvation. And the pouring of water from that pool onto the altar was a picture of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that's represented in Isaiah 12. In fact, I'm going I'm to back up that assertion with chapter 7. Just a couple chapters ago, Jesus, it says, on the last day of the festival, proclaims loudly... If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. It's during this festival. And I have to guess, if we know anything about what Jesus is working on doing, it's probably directly tied to this moment where they're pouring this water. It's a confrontational claim about who he is. And you can see there is a complicated, in-depth dance of revelation and confrontation that's going on with Jesus and the religious leaders. You can feel the conflict building. But back to the man who's been born blind. Does he seem surprised by his interaction with Jesus? We don't get that. Here's what we see. He encounters Jesus. Jesus asks him to do something, and he does it. He walks down to this pool. And I need to be clear, it's not close. It's not just in the lobby. It's a half mile away. It's 400 feet of elevation below the place where he's standing now. It's down rocky stairs in the midst of massive crowds. This is an arduous journey by anyone, much less a man who cannot see. 
And yet he takes and moves in an act of faith. He's told where to find healing, and he goes. He's not worried about looking silly. He's not worried about being ashamed. He's not worried about his ego. Nothing. He goes, and he washes, and he comes home seeing. You can imagine this creates a little bit of a chaos in his neighborhood. Uh, Isn't this Joe that's always been blind? What's going on? My favorite part is, no, I think it's just a guy that looks a lot like him. (laughs) Especially because the next line tells us Joe, whatever his name is, says, "Uh, it's me. (laughs) He's right there. And they ask him, what happened? He says, I met a man named Jesus. He put clay on my eyes, and he told me to wash, and he healed me. Now, it doesn't take very long that word gets around to the Pharisees. Pharisees are a little bit Jesus-triggered right about now. Anything that comes about Jesus, they get a little tense about. And so they, they arrange to get this guy drug in there. They're, they're bringing him in. They're going to ask him what's going on. And they say, what happened? And more importantly, when did it happen? And then he tells them the story. And debate breaks out between the two camps. One camp says, he can't possibly be from God. He broke the Sabbath. He's a sinner. And the other half says, How can he not be from God? He heals people's blindness. And this debate begins. All while this poor guy is standing there in the middle of the crowd, wondering when they're going to stop arguing. Eventually they do, and they say, well, what about you? What do you say about him? He says, this man is a prophet. Breaks out into a new debate. Maybe this guy's just a scammer. Maybe this is all a ruse. Maybe he's not the guy. Maybe he wasn't actually blind. Maybe this has all been a front to try to get some fame or notoriety. How are we going to figure it out? Some genius comes up with the idea, let's get his mom. That's what we're going to do. We're going to bring his mom in here. She'll know what's up. So they send for the man's parents. And this is what they say. Is this your son? It's such an obvious question. I love it. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can see now? Here's what, here's what mom says. We know he's our son. We know he was born blind. Beyond that, we're not commenting. I don't know who opened his eyes. I don't know who's involved. You should probably talk to him. He's a big boy now. He can answer his own questions. Why are they so uh, nervous about answering these questions? Well, the text tells us it's because they're worried that they're going to get kicked out of the synagogue. See, the Pharisees have already developed a process in which anyone who claims Jesus is the Messiah is kicked out of the synagogue worship. And I want to be clear to you, that's not the same thing as me telling you you don't get to come to church here next Sunday. It's, a, it's kind of a bigger deal than that. It, it has all kinds of social and religious implications, financial implications. These people, in the event that they decided that they were on the wrong side of this argument, would be kept from the parts of society that allowed them to be included, a way to participate in the life of the community, a way to worship, a way to be socially engaged, a way to earn a living. And ironically, it's the very thing that had been done to their son because of his blindness. Now they don't know what to do. But I guess we're going to take mom and dad's advice. Let's bring the boy back in. So they bring him back in. In verse 24, they begin to question him again. And he responds to them with one of the best lines in the entirety of Scripture. It's probably one of the best known lines, even outside of Christian or religious circles. He says, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. But one thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. 
This claim is so simple, but it gets right to the deepest heart of the matter. He doesn't give them a grand dissertation or a grand argument. He doesn't quote quote scripture. He doesn't show some amazing rhetorical skill or argumentative powers. And yet this one little statement is one of the best known and widely quoted texts in the entirety of scripture. Eleven words that scream with authenticity and power. They're simple and they're direct. One thing I know. I was blind, but now I see. It's a a powerful template for a testimony for your life. Maybe maybe you've encountered Jesus and you struggle to talk to people about it. You say, I I don't know how to share my faith. I I don't know enough. They might ask me awkward questions. They're going to think I'm weird. They might judge me. I don't know enough of the Bible. Our our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, um, was famous for saying, if you know enough to believe the gospel, you know enough to share the gospel. And this man gives us a sterling demonstration of this principle. He's standing before the ruling elite of his entire world, people who literally hold life and death in their hands. And to them, he gives a clear testimony of how his encounter with Jesus changed everything for him. I'd say it's indisputable testimony, but... The Pharisees, they start in again. Okay, let's go over this again. Who did it? When did he do it? What did he do? Where did he do it? And then we get this guy's response, which is one of the best and clearest examples of exasperation and sarcasm, of which I'm a big fan, in the scriptures in verse 27. Here's what he says. I told you already and you didn't listen the first time. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become disciples of his too? I'm going to give you one guess what their response is. These guys aren't exactly known for their calm responses. They lay into the guy. They start insulting him. They start insulting Jesus. And this guy is exasperated by the way he's being treated. He did nothing but accept grace, and he's been drugged into this. And he says in verse 30, Now that's remarkable. You don't know where this man comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to godly men who do his will. Nobody has ever heard of anyone opening the eyes of someone who's born blind. If this man was not from God, he could do nothing. And that's the last straw. They rage. They say, you were cooking in sin in your mother's womb, and you dare lecture us. And they throw him out of the synagogue. And this isn't like an orderly disassociation that his parents, you know, feared. This is like bar brawl, bouncer throwing a guy out of a club kind of throw out. And Jesus hears what's happened. And he begins to look for the man. And the text ends with Jesus wrapping up this entire encounter with a question that changes everything for him. Verse 35, he says, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found the man, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man said, Tell me so I can believe in him. Jesus said, You've now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. The ability to see comes full circle in this moment as the gift of physical sight is paired with the gift of spiritual sight. This man, when confronted with the luminous figure of the Nazarene named Jesus, cannot deny what he has done for him, and therefore he can see him for who he is. Lord, I believe. How could he not believe after all he's experienced? It seems impossible for him not to see. 
to not believe, to not accept the reality that was right there in front of him. And yet, the Pharisees, because they claim to be the ones who can see rightly, the ones who judge justly, the ones who decide who is holy and who's wicked, because they claim the ability to be able to suss out the heart and motivation of those they encounter, because they claim the moral God-given high ground and they use it to judge the world, because they claim to see, their guilt remains. I think there's two major takeaways that I want to leave us with out of this story. The first one comes from the Pharisees because their position is the one that Jesus says he comes to judge. Their hill of pride, their self-confidence, their self-congratulatory self-righteousness, their stance of moral superiority. It's in this very place where they claim to see that they are clearly the most blind. Jesus stands right before them The stories of what Jesus is doing surround them. The testimonies of his work invades their space. He haunts their thoughts. Their arguments are motivated by him. And like a man staring into the sun, they're driven to blindness by a light that they refuse to yield to. Church, I don't want to be that kind of place. A church that's so sure of itself and its position that we become hard-hearted and judgmental. A church that's looking for every excuse why they got what they deserved. A church that finds itself so close to Jesus and yet so unwilling to allow his light to illuminate our hearts and our world. I think the only way that we can attempt to avoid that kind of posture is by taking on the posture of the man that was born blind and doing it intentionally. He does not have an illusion of being without need. And because of that, he's willing to hear the voice of his creator and to be recreated. He walks where he asks him to walk and he experiences the healing of the Savior for it is the blind that will see and those that see will become blind. My last takeaway this morning is encouragement for you. If you're here this morning and you find yourself relating to the man outside the gate, maybe you've been set aside by the world around you. Maybe you're experiencing physical pain, or disability or disease. Maybe your lonely experience is one in which you've experienced loss or hurts that you feel like no one else can understand. Maybe you wonder what God could possibly do with the mess you've made of your life. I want to give you the hope that Jesus gave this man. This has happened so that the work of God may be displayed in your life. Now you might say, how do you know that? You can't apply this specific story to everyone and everything. I'm not the man born blind. Jesus isn't here to spit in the mud and fix my situation. He's not here to heal me. He's not here to change or repair anything I've done or experienced. You're right. I don't know what God has planned for your specific circumstance. I don't know. I don't know if he plans to heal or change or repair anything that you've experienced. I don't know that, but that's not the promise that Jesus gave this man. He promised, and he said to him, and he's saying to you, this has happened so that the work of God might be displayed in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've, you've struggled to make sense of your hurts and your brokenness, maybe you feel distance from God because you viewed your situation as one that is one of punishment or neglect, I I understand. I've I've been there. I've been there. 
It's 10 years ago, my wife and I buried our infant son, Paxson. It was in the months and frankly years before that moment, I prayed and committed myself to his goodness more than anything else I had ever committed to in my life. I prayed for his health and for his survival and it didn't happen. There was an intense fear and a hurt and a sadness that existed in his loss, some of which I still carry a decade later, some of which I suspect I'll be carrying to my deathbed. But it was in the midst of that time when we felt the most alone, when we felt most tempted to believe that God had forgotten us or that he was angry with us or that he was punishing us for something we had done, God was asking us to do something else. He asked us, he asked me to believe him and trust him. To believe that he was still close and he still cared. To believe me, to believe that he was sufficient to carry me through the grief. He asked me to believe that there was hope and healing to be found in him. And that journey of belief was no less arduous and no less dangerous to me than the kind of journey that sends a blind man down a step of steps of steep stairs to wash in a pool of water. And I'm here this morning to tell you he was faithful. He was faithful to me. He proved himself to be kind. He proved to use our story as one in which the work of God would be displayed in our lives. And he's doing it right now. And this morning he's asking you to walk to the pool and wash what's been broken. Use that part of your story to tell how you have met Jesus in your moment of need. Maybe you've held on to angerness and bitterness and judgment in the midst of your pain. I get it. This morning he's asking to remake your story into one in which the works of God will be displayed in your life. Will you let him? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never met Jesus. Maybe you've never heard his voice. Maybe you've never sensed his presence as he kneels down near you. Maybe you feel so broken and so discarded, you can't even imagine that he would notice you to stop on the side of the road. He's stopping this morning. Maybe you never looked on his face with hope and faith. Maybe you've never heard him ask you if you believe. He's asking you this morning, right here, right now, He's offering healing balm to you. He's offering his loving care. He's offering to reauthor your story and recreate you. He's offering to give you eyes to see. It's why he came, to give sight to the blind. He came to you. He came for you. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for this story, the story of this man born blind. You tell us through the text that this happened to him so that the works of God could be displayed in his life. And here we are 2,000 years later proving you true. These works, these things that happened to him are being, bringing glory to your name and offering encouragement to us today. God, use our lives to do the same thing. Let us be credible witnesses of what you've done. Let us be people who have encountered Jesus and been transformed by him. Let our testimony be one that is clear. I could not see, and now I do. God, we thank you for Jesus, who comes close, who cares, 
who transforms, who recreates, who makes new. We pray that we see him today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.